First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Digesting, dissecting the uh, Albert election results, a UCP majority, much slimmer majority, of course, uh, than they won in 2019, which again was to be expected. Uh, part of the question, though, was what was to be expected in this election? I got a text here. It says, Rob, you should uh, keep the topic about Notley resigning as leader of the NDP. If Smith were in that position, the media would be all over her to resign. Look, I don't think it's about what the media thinks. I mean, it's about what the party thinks. I don't think there's many people in the NDP who want Rachel Notley to quit because where would that leave them? But, I mean, maybe the conversation comes up. I mean, you know, she's lost two elections in a row now. I think for the UCP, look, if, if the UCP had lost, I mean, Smith would be toast. I don't think there's any question about that. Even a 44, 45-seat win would have been iffy. I think as long as she got closer to 50 or over 50, she probably be, would be secure in her position. And that's kind of where we are. So is she going to make it another four years? Because, of course, Kenny didn't. You know, before that, Stelmack didn't. Redford didn't. Uh, it's been a while. I mean, you had Rachel Notley, but you have to go back to Ralph Klein to find a conservative premier who you know, lasted uh, an entire term. We'll see if this premier does. But, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's a majority. And I know going into this election, there was some question about whether that would happen. I think going back to the leadership race last year, you know, was this the candidate that the NDP wanted? I think you look at it another way. I mean, Alberta's recovered nicely coming out of the pandemic. Uh, you know, investment is returning. Jobs are returning. The economy's doing well. Th- this should be fertile ground for, for an incumbent conservative government. But uh, joining us uh, for some, some thoughts on uh, the election, what it all means, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Lauren Gunter, senior political columnist with the Edmonton Sun with Post Media. Lauren, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. I, I mean, I kind of expected something like this result, uh, which is not to say that I'm a great prognosticator, but just maybe that was what everything was kind of pointing to. Did it surprise you at all last night? No, I, I think the turning point came in mid-May when the NDP released their uh, economic uh, tax and environmental policies and uh, showed that they haven't learned anything since 2019. You know, they're... they're that uh, suggestion that they were going to uh, increase taxes on corporations, middle and large sized, uh, by 37.5%, reminded enough people in Calgary that the NDP had run the economy into the ground during their first term that I think that turned the election. I really do. I think that was the mistake Notley was talking about on Monday night when she gave her concession speech. She said, you know, there were mistakes made and I take that was it i think that was the big one and and uh, so i you know she will survive you you were saying in your preamble there uh does she go or does she not she will stay as long as she wants to because i have never in all my years in politics covering politics and being involved in politics at the federal and provincial level i've never seen a party that was as loyal to a leader as the Alberta NDP are to Rachel Notley. And maybe mm-hmm. that's a subconscious uh, uh, recognition on their part that she's the only thing they've got, the only thing they've got. Without Rachel Notley, they would not have 
38 seats in the legislature. And there's some truth to that. I mean, I, I still find it hard to envision a, a 2027 election where both these leaders are at the helms of their respective parties. But who knows? Maybe that is the case. It's a yeah, long ways I, away, though. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder whether or not uh, Rachel Notley is becoming the uh, Alberta version of Andrea Horvath, who was the leader of the NDP in Ontario through four elections. Yeah. Uh, Horvath never won. Notley won once. But without vote splitting on the right, uh, I think you have now seen last night the peak for the NDP. This is the best they're ever going to do because the UCP leader was the weakest that she's going to be. I think she will learn as she goes through this term how to sound more uh, mainstream, how to sound a little less wingy, uh, and uh, and and that will only strengthen. It, it is. I'm making this point this morning. Uh, it will be easier for the UCP to win back the Calgary seats that it lost last night than it will be for the NDP to make any inroads at all in rural Alberta. My, my look at the results just before I came on air is that there are only two seats outside Edmonton and Calgary that the, the NDP won, Banff, Kananaskis, and Lethbridge uh, West. That's it. And they, don't, and they lose by much bigger margins outside of Edmonton and Calgary than the UCP lose inside Calgary. It's interesting you mentioned, you know, the, the vote splitting because you know, we're not used to two party systems basically in, in this country because, uh, you know, the NDP won 44 percent of the vote, which, you know, in a, a three or four party race would be a, a huge majority. But, yep. you know, it, it's actually, you know, for the people who, who complain about the lack of proportional representation, well, we kind of have it in Alberta, right, when you can bear the yep. popular vote to the seat count. Yeah. And um uh, we also have the fact that in this election, the NDP did not convince an awful lot of UCP supporters from 2019 to switch to them in 2023. What they convinced were you've got the Alberta Party and the Liberal Party and those supporters of the other left parties mm -hmm. uh, all coalesced around the NDP. That's where they got much of their strength from. And it's fascinating to me, this is just an aside, but it's fascinating to me that the Alberta Liberal Party, which you remember was the opposition to the first Klein government, um, the Alberta Liberal Party um, got fewer votes than the Solidarity Movement run by Arthur Palacios. <laughs> yeah, that's they have pretty become, they, they become a lunatic fringe. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the left is is united for all intents and purposes. Yeah. So, you know, to have that conversation about where do we go from here? I mean, that's that's not really an option. Maybe they need to reinvent themselves uh, in some capacity. Who knows? But we talk about what we could look back on as maybe mistakes uh, on the part of the NDP, the, the corporate tax increase. I agree that I think that played into the UCP hands or whether their campaign was too negative. But does that suggest that it was there for the taking, like the NDP maybe could have won this if things had gone the other way? Or how much did that ultimately matter? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there were two things that played into this. I, I actually don't think it was the UCP who made good advantage of the NDP promise of raising corporate taxes. I think that was ordinary Albertans understanding what that meant. You know, the understanding that one of the reasons we didn't recover from the world oil price decline in 2014 until the UCP were elected in 2019, uh, we were three years behind the rest of the world in recovering, was NDP policy.
And so I think it was ordinary Albertans understood that that corporate tax increase was going to be devastating. But I also think that it was there for the taking of the NDP because I don't believe the UCP used their advantages. I don't think that they went hard enough on the NDP for their economic record from 2015 to 2019. They sort of hammered that a lot. I don't think we saw enough of and, and, and maybe the UCP think they did this, but I, I don't remember seeing a single ad where there were pictures of Notley and Trudeau uh, laughing together, which they often did while Notley was the premier, uh, just to remind people that she was very close ideologically to the most hated political figure in Alberta. We look at this victory then, and, and the victory for Danielle Smith, which is indeed a majority government, a, a slimmer majority government. I, I Look, I, I said at the top of the hour, I think if, if they'd lost, she was toast. If she had got a razor-thin, like 44-, 45-seat win, she would have been in a tenuous position. Is, is this enough that, you know, the party's happy, that she's secure for now? Yeah. You know, this is not a 5-1 win. Uh, it's a 5-4 win, but but at least it's, uh, it's a 5 at least it's not a 5-4 win. When you win 5-4, you feel like you just knocked through. 5-3, mm-hmm. okay, it's not as comfortable as you would have liked, but it's better than, than you know, 5-4 or an overtime win. I think she has survived. I think uh, the UCP understand that they need to be united. Uh, there can't be two parties on the right. My concern for her would be that if she migrates to the more moderate part of the right of center spectrum that a lot of the people like the take back Alberta people will uh, rebel against her and they'll start their own party because you know they 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 aren't interested in power as much as they are interested in in um, proving points Uh, and so that's my big concern for that if she can hold that coalition together I think as a politician she matures over the next four years and we see the NDP lose support next time. I mean, have we seen the real Danielle yet? I mean, look, it's maybe to be expected. The leadership campaign is going to be different than a general election campaign. But, you know, last year, the Danielle we saw was different from the Danielle we saw this year. Even the in-between was not necessarily the, the same as, as either. Have we, have we seen yeah. the, the real Danielle yet? What's your sense of what to expect from her? I think she's becoming more experienced as a retail politician. I mean, you and I as commentators would both have the same problem she had if we decided to run for office, and that is that we have said or written things that uh, that clever opponents would use against us. Um, and and she, I think, has the, the, the shock value of those now uh, is greatly diminished. Uh, we, we've seen the NDP shoot there bolt um, at her on in, in, in the election and there's not much left there that's going to shock people there may be other pieces of of uh, tape or other comments that she's made in 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 the podcast or whatever that that would be controversial but the shock value of them now is gone and so the ndp Worked that as much as they could. They they played up this Rachel is the ordinary Albertan, which she isn't. She'd have handed over labor policy to the union. She'd have handed over energy policy to the environmentalists. You know, she talked about I'm all for mainstream uh, Alberta, and Danielle Smith is not. I don't think that's true at all. But um, 
But they played that up really well. It worked very well for them, and they still didn't win. So I think you've now seen as good as the NDP can get. Yeah, that's the thing. And and here's and I, I would think or hope that the UCP would recognize this. I think you're right that if the NDP couldn't win this election with all of those old statements, that that's going to be irrelevant come 2027 unless Danielle starts to act that way. And unless we see that Danielle Smith is premier, like she's not that foolish, is she? No, I don't think so. I think I think she she will grow into the job. Uh, remember, this this result is a little bit weaker than Ralph Klein's first win in 1993, but not much. I mean, Klein won 52 to 31, and and the uh, UCP, there's more seats now in the legislature. The UCP are at 49 to 38. It's similar to Ralph. And by 1997, when they ran the second, when Ralph ran the second time, uh, the the PCs in the the day won a majority of seats in, in Edmonton. So... Um, it's possible to grow into the job, to gain popularity, to to, to assure Albertans that you aren't nuts, uh, which is what the NDP tried to portray Smith as, and they did a good job. We'll leave it there for now. Lord, appreciate the perspective on all this, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. You bet, Rob. All the best. Cheers. Lauren Gunter, senior political columnist uh, for the Edmonton Sun, edmontonsun.com, calgarysun.com. So uh, his thoughts on how we got here and what to expect now moving forward. Your thoughts on on those questions, some of the other questions coming to this campaign. The final category of threat outlined to me, Madam Speaker, is related to voter suppression, specifically Intelligent indicated an active campaign of voter suppression against me, the Conservative Party of Canada, and a candidate in one electoral district during the 2021 general election. That was Conservative MP Aaron O'Toole, former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, speaking in Parliament today and talking about some of the intelligence that he has seen. And, and this is an indication, by the way, that, that, yes, okay, so party leaders can look at this intelligence and still talk about it in the House. But the other shocking thing is, okay, well, wait a sec. This is the same intelligence that David Johnston was seeing. So Aaron O'Toole uh, painting quite a a disturbing picture about uh, Chinese interference targeting him and his party in the 2021 election. Interference intended to discredit him, to promote false narratives about his policies, to try to engage in voter suppression. So it's pretty alarming stuff, and and it fits in with much of what has come to light about China's efforts and and how feeble and weak our responses have been. So we'll see what comes of all of this. David Johnston intends to stay on and oversee these uh, public hearings, the federal government for now uh, resisting the calls for public inquiry. But our next guest makes the case that, look, this all needs to be a a big wake-up call. We're basically in a new Cold War here. And we shouldn't be under any illusions about that. Brian Lee Crowley is managing director at McDonald Laurier Institute, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Brian, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, thanks so much for the invitation to be here. Well, let me get your thoughts first of all. I mean, Aaron O'Toole uh, is speaking in the House of Commons today, outlining everything he saw. And like I say, it's pretty disturbing stuff. Same stuff that David Johnston saw. I don't know that we, we saw this tone from him in his report. What, what do you make of all of that, first of all? Well, Look, I, I, I have to say that the, the Johnston report is a deep disappointment. Mm-hmm. Anybody who has been following 
what we have learned over the past few years about Chinese interference in Canadian society, not just in elections, but across a whole series of institutions, uh, knows that uh, China has got uh, Canada in its sights. China is trying to uh, capture and influence every kind of institution, including our elections. There's loads of evidence that they tried to suppress uh, voters, not only in um, in Aaron O'Toole's riding, but uh, that there were active campaigns on social media. There were, uh, you know, young Chinese students dragooned into doing uh, canvassing. I mean, the, the, the range of activities uh, by the Chinese designed to influence our elections in specific, uh, in specific uh, uh, constituencies is, I think, beyond dispute. And when David Johnston says, oh, gosh, you know, this has all been misinterpreted and there were malevolent leakers in, uh, in the intelligence services and so on, yeah. I have to say that uh, he has harmed no one's um, credibility except his own. Indeed. On the question of uh, a public inquiry, I mean, do you still believe one is necessary? And, e- and even if we don't get one, right, I, and part of what you wrote about recently is just, you know, we need to, to come to grips with this, this challenge, this, what this adversary is trying to do here. Well, the, the, the problem, Rob, is if, is if we don't respond to what China is doing, China gets a free hand. They right. get to interfere in our election. They get to have police stations in our major cities. Uh, they get to um, uh, uh, exercise influence over our universities through major research grants and uh, collaboration with uh, institutions in, uh, in China. Uh, the list just goes on and on. We have, in effect, unilaterally disarmed in a struggle that China is very actively conducting against us. And I don't mean that they've singled out Canada. Uh, they're engaged in campaigns like this throughout the Western world. But I think it's very clear that China has concluded that Canada is a particularly soft target. And I have to say that no one would have been more thrilled with the interim report by David Johnston the Chinese. And here's the thing. I mean, CSIS has been trying to warn us uh, about this. They've been trying to warn the politicians. Now they're trying to go out of the way to bypass the politicians and, and warn Canadians. And, and rather than say, thank you for calling our attention to this, rather than listening to them, we're, you know, kind of wagging our, our finger at them. That That's that's not the, the response we need right now, is it? Well, it's certainly not the response I think we need. And uh, you know, a former uh, CSIS, uh, the, the, uh, our spy agency, if you if you if you like to use that terminology, uh, a, a former member of the uh, CSIS team charged with keeping an eye on Chinese activities in Canada, has written an op-ed in the Ottawa Citizen just last week saying that David Johnson owes Canada's spies an apology for the dreadful way that he characterized them and the work that they've been doing. And the fact that um, the people who have have been charged by Parliament with the responsibility of ensuring that Canadian society is safe from this kind of foreign interference have been pilloried by the very government that they have been asked by to protect Canadians. 
And I think that uh, uh, what's happened is that the people in the intelligence community in Canada who have been watching literally for decades, been watching China reach into various uh, institutions within Canada. Uh, these people have been sending uh, briefings to the PMO and the Minister of Public Safety and uh, others for years with nothing to show for it. And I think they finally said, well, if the politicians won't act on the information that we're making available to them, we must bypass them and take this information to the Canadian public. And I think that's what these leaks represent. And uh, I think that David Johnston did a terrible disservice to Canada by suggesting that this was uh, done with malicious intent by uh, people working in the intelligence community as opposed to people who were terribly frustrated by the unwillingness of our political authorities to speak up and stand up for Canada. So there's an urgency to get serious, right? So what, what does a serious government response look like? What, what do we need to do or what do we want to see? Well, first of all, I think we need to stop thinking that this is just about interference in our elections. Don't, don't get me wrong. That is a terribly important piece of this. Mm-hmm. But what I said in my uh, piece in The Globe on the weekend was that the evidence is that China is busy suborning, undermining, influencing institutions across Canadian society. You know, they're actively running police operations in Canada without seeking the permission of the RCMP, for example, targeting uh, Canadians of Chinese origin uh, for influence operations, threatening them with, uh, you know, consequences for their families, exactly what happened to Michael Chong. You've got uh, our, our universities, you've got our research labs. You might remember that the, uh, the uh, infectious disease lab in Winnipeg, uh, you know, a couple of scientists basically ran away after it became clear that they were handing secrets over to China, and yet nothing has been done uh, in, in pursuit of them. So... Uh, clearly, we need to have a, a broader perspective than just what's happening with elections. I think we need to have a public inquiry, ideally, I think, uh, uh, run not by uh, not by a Canadian, but I think we should bring in a former head of MI5 from the from the United Kingdom or the intelligence service from Australia, somebody who is who has no skin in the game in the in Canadian politics, mm-hmm. but knows what the Chinese are up to, who can lead a broad inquiry into the, all the ways in which China is trying to interfere in Canadian society. We should be um, putting in place a foreign agent's registry, uh, which is not uh, uh, contrary to what some people in the government have been suggesting, an attempt to... Uh, uh, racistly identify uh, uh, Chinese Canadians, but on the contrary, to ask who in Canada, Chinese or otherwise, because there are a lot of people in the political elite in Canada who are involved in this, and they are not of Chinese origin. Right. What we want to do is we want to ask everybody who is acting on behalf of a foreign government to say so. All we're asking is that they reveal to the public that uh, they are acting on behalf of foreign governments and that this be public information. And if we start to 
do things like this, I think we will rapidly find that the Chinese ability to influence Canadian society declines. Yeah, some important points. Much more is mentioned. McDonaldLaurier.ca. Brian, appreciate the insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you so much, Rob. All the best. Take care. Brian Lee Crowley is Managing uh, Director of the McDonald Laurier Institute. Again, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Let me play for you a little bit more what Aaron O'Toole had to say. And, and this will be interesting for the leaders to, to navigate. And, you know, there's some real intense back and forth today in question period between Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau and the liberals, you know, pressing Pierre Polyev and his reluctance to accept these intelligence briefings. And I think part of it is he just doesn't want to play their game. But there is parliamentary immunity, and there's a lot of legal nuance in, in some of that. But it's interesting to see Aaron O'Toole today showing that, okay, yes, there's an opportunity here to be able to look at this intelligence, but also still talk about it in parliament. And Aaron O'Toole did so today. And again, it was, it was pretty shocking what he learned. The facts of my case, Madam Speaker, are distinct as they relate to an ongoing campaign of foreign interference to target me as both a member of this chamber and as leader of the official opposition. Given my respect for the men and women who work for CSIS and the Canadian security establishment, I will not provide the specific detail from my intelligent briefing on the numerous threats identified to me, as I do not want any details to reveal sources or methods of collection. While I have more detail than I'm sharing with the House, I want to ensure that the public interest is properly served alongside ensuring that important intelligence gathered can continue unimpeded by appropriate parliamentary review. As an aside, Madam Speaker, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee could, of course, obtain further details directly from the government under appropriate in-camera cautions. That said, I will break the nature of the threats identified to me by CSIS into four distinct categories of threats. Each of these threats were intended to discredit me, promote, promote false narratives about my policies, and to severely obstruct my work as a member of parliament and as leader of the official opposition. The numerous examples also demonstrate that there was an orchestrated campaign of foreign interference in the 43rd parliament and into the 2021 general election. The first category of threat is related to foreign funding, specifically the payment of funds by the Chinese Communist Party through the United Front Work Department to create specific products of misinformation on me as a member of parliament and as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. The second category of threat is related to human resources, specifically the use of groups of people working for or aligned with the United Front Work Department in Canada. They were organized and directed by a foreign state to amplify misinformation efforts and undermine my work as a member of this chamber and as leader of a parliamentary caucus. The third category of threat is related to foreign-controlled social media platforms. This category related specifically to the WeChat communications platform and its use to further the aims of the Chinese Communist Party and the United Front Work Department and their campaign to spread misinformation to undermine and discredit my work in this chamber as the Member of Parliament for Durham and as leader of the official opposition. The final category of threat outlined to me, Madam Speaker, is related to voter suppression. Specifically, intelligence indicated 
an active campaign of voter suppression against me, the Conservative Party of Canada, and a candidate in one electoral district during the 2021 general election. I must acknowledge at this point, Madam Speaker, that I also believe my privileges as a member and officer of Parliament were infringed by the government's unwillingness or inability to act on intelligence related to foreign interference. The briefing from CSIS confirmed to me what I had expected, suspected for quite some time, that my parliamentary caucus and myself were the target of a sophisticated misinformation and voter suppression campaign orchestrated by the People's Republic of China before and during the 2021 general election. Okay, that was Aaron O'Toole speaking of the House of Commons today and still limited in what he can say. Probably more that he's able to say inside Parliament where parliamentary privilege applies. But yeah, look, this is pretty shocking stuff. And this is not a good look on David Johnston that he saw the same intelligence and seemingly downplayed much of this in his report. I think if, there, if we needed further evidence that, you know, maybe this uh, has been, uh, well, maybe not a waste of time, but that this is, was not a good choice and, and that this report has uh, many flaws, here's some additional proof. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. revisit a story from just over a month ago. In fact, it's been just over a month since this massive gold heist at uh, Toronto's Pearson Airport. $20 million in gold and other high-value goods were reported stolen. And here we are now more than a month later, and this remains unsolved. It was a story that garnered national and international headlines, as these kinds of heists tend to do. They don't happen very often. They're very audacious. They definitely do capture the public's imagination. Well, joining us to talk more about the challenge in solving a case like this, why these kinds of heists generate such interest. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Scott Andrew Selby, co-author of the book Flawless, Inside the Largest Diamond Heist in History. More at scottselby.com. Scott, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. I'm excited to be here. Well, and it's fun to talk about this stuff, I think, for, for a number of reasons, which we can get into. But just in, in terms of the status of this case, and when we look at others like it that have happened before, should we be at all surprised that this is, is unsolved still? Uh, no, not at all. There was actually a heist that was almost exactly the same at the same exact airport in 1952 that remains unsolved. What is it about these kinds of cases? Is it just given how elaborate they are, how presumably smart these these thieves are that make it that much more difficult to, to solve? Definitely. I mean, these are um, professionals. These are not the, um, you know, junkies smashing your window and grabbing your stuff. These are um, very clever people. And sometimes they get away with it. Sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. I mean, it's one thing to, to be, you know, crafty and elaborate, but, you know, when it's this big, you're going to attract a lot of attention. And when you've got all of this gold or all of these diamonds or whatever the case is, 
Like, what do you do with it? Is, is that sometimes where these go sideways is that they, they might pull off a smart heist, but maybe they're, they're not so smart, you know, in the weeks and months afterward? Uh, you're 100% right, Rob. People make mistakes, and generally they plan the heist perfectly, but the getaway, they make mistakes as well as in the aftermath. So, for instance, I wrote about um, the Antwerp diamond heist where these guys stole hundreds of millions of dollars worth of diamonds from the secure diamond area in Antwerp, Belgium. Brilliant heist, brilliant. And during their getaway, they made some basic mistakes that got them caught, you know, and um, they could happen here. They have uh, 20 million in Canadian dollars in gold right now. And there's a lot of questions about what exactly they do with that. And they could get mixed up with organized crime. You know, maybe they control the port of Montreal, try to move it out of the country, and that's mm -hmm. dangerous. They could bury it in their backyard. Gold keeps up with inflation. There's, there's a lot of different choices. Some are more elaborate than others. I mean, it helps if you've got people on the inside that are, you know, part of this or, or sharing information. But, I mean, the case you wrote about, now this was just this was about 20 years ago in Antwerp, Belgium, as you mentioned, in terms of how these guys pulled that off, I think that part is still a mystery, right? They know who did it, but how they managed to get in, get past these alarms, steal $100 million in diamonds, how do you do something like that? Uh, systematically. Basically, you're the best of the best. That's the thing is when you're protecting something valuable like $20 million in gold or hundreds of millions in diamonds, you're up against the best of the best in the world. And they could take the time and investment. It's sort of like a startup. The guys in my book, they spent two years figuring out how to bypass each layer of security one by one. And you're right. For me, the big mystery with that is how they got past the uh, combination in the safe deposit, um, the vault door there, which had 100 million possibilities. Also, the the goods, the stolen goods there, they really haven't been recovered. So they're out there somewhere. So that's that's a huge mystery to me. So it's for me, it's not so much a who done it. At this point doing the book, I think I know how done it, but I'm definitely curious like where the loot is. Right. And then you had like the Lufthansa heist and, and you know, was dramatized in Goodfellas, just how almost easy that was. I don't know yeah. if the Toronto, the Pearson Gold heist is, is closer to that. I, I think there's a suspicion here that maybe there was somebody on, on the inside helping them out. But I guess that we, we really don't know at this point, do we? We don't. I mean, either one is entirely possible. I mean, the Lufthansa heist, great deep cut right there. There was an insider. Somebody had a gambling debt. Nobody had any idea how big the take would be. And that was their downfall, right? Everybody was after them, the mob, the police. You know, it didn't end so well for them. Um, and if you haven't seen Goodfellas, please do. <laughs> but well, who hasn't at this point? I'd like to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at this point, it could be inside information. Yeah. There was like a sort of truck stop type diner across the way that they could have been watching these people. Either one's entirely possible, and I'm sure the police are following up on all possibilities. In terms of that, that fascination that we touched on, I mean, you know, when we're referring to movies, because a lot of this stuff seems like it's almost lifted right out of a movie. You know, the, the drama, the audaciousness of it all. What, what is it about these kinds of crimes that really seem to capture the public's uh, fascination, or at least, you know, for you and, you know, to, to co-author a book about one? Well, for me, it's sort of the best of the best against each other. It's a spy versus spy element of trying to protect something versus the people trying to get it. And I see these heists as two main types. There's a kind where the people come in hard and fast with guns, and that's like an action movie, right? They have the Pink Panthers in Europe. They'll have latex masks. They'll take a speedboat to get away, right? 
And, or there's this sort of heist, which I find to be like a, a magic trick. And we all want to know how the magic trick was done. The gold's there and then it's not, it's just gone. And it's a real mystery. And there's, in our world, we don't have so many mysteries left. Yeah, I think that that's a part of it too. So you know, back to the question too of, of, you know, who would do this or does do this sort of thing, like this kind of clandestine world where, you know, you've got international crime syndicates or, you know, people who, who are able to to move these kinds of resources, like the average criminal isn't going to be able to to store $20 million in gold, let alone move it or, or ship it. Like, what are these networks that exist? Like, like how does this stuff get trafficked and, and planned? Like, what's going on here? I would guess that there's one of two possibilities here. Either it's organized crime that's um, sort of branching out into this sort of heist amongst their many activities, right? And obviously, you have all sorts of different organized crime groups uh, located in that area. Another possibility is like in, in my book, Flawless, where it's a group of professional thieves and they're willing to travel the world and just plan something, pull it off and then leave, right? And then in terms of moving the goods, there's fences and there's fences that deal with all kinds of stuff. And the thieves could take a real hit, maybe 10 cents, 20 cents in the dollar and the fences know how to move it. This kind of gold, it's gonna be stamped. It's gonna have serial numbers. And in the old days, you could just find a smelter to do it. But now I would think they'd probably move it out of the country to the Middle East where maybe people won't care. Well, that, that becomes part of the challenge, too, for law enforcement. Uh, you know, with, with Toronto Pearson International Airport, you've, all, you've even got some overlapping jurisdictions there between local police, authorities at the airport. Now you've got possibly international repercussions and the challenge uh, of police, you know, law enforcement agencies in different countries coordinating. Uh, is, is there at least a playbook here, given that this has happened before? Or oftentimes law enforcement agencies still kind of working in the dark with these kinds of heists? It's both. There's definitely a playbook. Uh, I mean, we have Interpol. The plane came from Zurich. You know, there's mm -hmm. um, there is cooperation, but there's a big difference between cooperation and being in the same department. Right. That's why the thieves in my book, Flawless, the School of Turin, they really took advantage of the fact that moving from country to country in Europe was very easy and law right. enforcement you know, wouldn't know them. So maybe the, the diamond detectives in Belgium knew some of them, you know, by just by look, or maybe in Italy, they knew some people. So it definitely makes it a lot easier for the thieves. Um, but yeah, of course, police are cooperating with each other. Right. And, and inevitably, would the criminals be arrested, prosecuted or extradited back to the jurisdiction where the heist occurred? Or, you know, you say if a flight originates in a different country or the, the loot belonged to a company in another country, do they get jurisdiction? Do they get to prosecute these guys? Like, how does that get sorted out? I'm also a lawyer, and, and it, I'll tell you, it gets complicated. <laughs> yeah. I, if Canada catches them on Canadian soil, it's it's in Canada, 100%, you know, um, unless somebody somehow has diplomatic immunity, right? But it just depends. The thieves in my book, um, one of them was caught in Belgium, served time there. Some of them were in Italy, and Italy wouldn't extradite their citizens, so they had to serve their time in Italy. But it's going to vary. I mean, there's going to be certain countries. Also, let's say the people are not Canadian citizens, but citizens of a country that doesn't extradite. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they'll be tried in that country. Maybe they won't. Um, 
it just it gets really messy catching people in other places. But, you know, it depends. I mean, also, um, one of the thieves in my book, he was caught switching planes in France when there was Interpol had a red notice on him. And France was only all too happy to get rid of him. I mean, he wasn't a French citizen, they, so they really didn't care. And I mean, yeah, these 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 criminals, these organizations. I mean, these are serious people. They look at, I'm sure, what are the risks, what's the payoff. Is, is there any copycat factor at any level here? Do you think, or at least, you know, if someone's able to get away with one somewhere else, does that change that that risk assessment at all for for other groups or other individuals? Of course. I mean, um, you know, people have MOs. It's just like any kind of criminal. They have a modus operandi. And so there's certain groups you see things and you think, oh, yeah, like in Europe, you could be like the Pink Panthers. These guys bust in with guns and disguises. The school of Turin, it's a magic trick. They disappear, you know, and it would be amazing. This is an exact copy of a heist in September 24th, 1952 at the same airport where a bunch of uh, boxes of gold just disappeared, you know, at the airport. It would be amazing if somebody was inspired by that. Yeah, no kidding. Maybe we'll find out at some point. We shall see. In the meantime, as mentioned, uh, the book you co-authored, it's called Flawless Inside, the Largest Diamond Heist in History. Or at scottselby.com. Scott, appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thank you so much. I'd love to give a shout out to Brian Lilly at the Toronto Sun. He's been doing a great job on this story also. Yeah, absolutely. He has, yeah, for sure. Scott, thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. All the best. There you go. Scott Andrew Selby, co-author of Flawless Inside the Largest Diamond Heist in History. And yeah, I think it was the Toronto Sun was first to break the story. The weird thing was, it was like a couple days after the fact that it kind of came out. Like, oh yeah, by the way, $20 million in gold just kind of went missing the other day. Oh, interesting. There wasn't the kind of, um, you know, big press conference, you know, the, the big announcement that you would have expected with something like this, would have expected. That maybe it's because it's kind of embarrassing at some level. Like, well, how does that happen under your nose? And so here we are now, more than a month later, and it's kind of shoulder shrugs at this point. So we don't know who did it. It is interesting, as he notes, 1952, something very similar, almost identical. It was called Malton Airport at the time, now Toronto's uh, Pearson International Airport. But a uh, big gold heist then. Not quite on the same scale as 215,000 uh, today's dollars, you know, roughly, or, or with all the factors included, about $2.3 million today. In the aftermath of the David Johnston report last week, and look, this has dominated much of the discourse in this country, understandably so. The challenge of foreign election interference is a big one, and in particular when it comes to China and what China has done in targeting Canada, targeting diaspora communities, even targeting certain politicians. Like all of this is a big, big deal. There's an overlooked aspect, though, in this report that came out last week, and David Johnson in particular. Yes, some have questioned his findings. Yes, some have questioned his conflict of interest, and that's all legitimate. But our next guest is making the case that we should care that this former governor general is being used in part because he is a former governor general. Like, this gives him additional clout or respect or prestige. And maybe it does, because in order to be appointed governor general in the first place, theoretically, you are some, someone noteworthy, someone of some prestige, someone worthy of holding that, that position. But the position itself has to matter. Our next guest says that for someone appointed to be governor general, that should be their last real act of any kind of public service. 
and that by having former governors general take on matters of some controversy like this here, it undermines the position. And in the long run, that's bad for Canada. Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts on, on some of those big questions, we're pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon one of this country's leading constitutional scholars, uh, Philippe Lagasse, an associate professor and Barton chair at Carleton University. He's written about all of this in a piece for The Line, theline.substack.com. Philippe, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I mean, is this the, the highest profile example, I guess, that you can think of, of, of a former governor general being asked to take on a, another separate uh, role such as this? Uh, yes, I think in, in this case, uh, Mr. Johnson is, is particularly unique. But uh, one of the issues I raise in the piece is we don't want this to become a new habit like retired Supreme Court justices mm-hmm. being asked to take on various things. Um, and similarly, we've had former uh, governors general such as Mikhail Jean trying to get uh, positions, international positions after serving in, in that office and so forth. So there, there are some concerns about just how, how what, what the role of a former vice regal should be and how much the government should be uh, using them to, to either fulfill Canada's international profile or take on, in this case, some pretty sensitive and controversial issues. Right. And I think, you know, the, the kind of person we look to to fill that role of governor general, it's the same sort of criteria or the same kind of merits, I guess, we would look for in someone who's asked to take on other kinds of responsibilities, like in this case, David Johnston. But uh, why is that the wrong way to look at someone who has been in that position? What, what are your concerns about former governors general being used in this capacity? So the, the governor general, we just have to be clear here, is the second highest office of the Canadian state. So it's right under the monarch. And really, that's the so you're, you're talking about a position that's at the apex of the Canadian constitutional order. And this person is meant to be completely impartial, uh, independent, neutral, and they need to really cultivate that as being core to their function. So the first concern I would have is when you take somebody who has had to be wedded to full impartiality, non-controversial, fully independent, and you put them in something like this uh, for Mr. Johnson, which is very controversial, uh, subject to partisan attacks, forced to defend himself, it diminishes uh, the the, the other features that he had as being part of that, that formal office. The second one, uh, which I think is is equally important, is uh, governors general are paid about $350,000 a year. They hold the position for five years. And after those five years, they then get an annuity for the rest of their life of $150,000, plus official expenses, plus uh, money to set up a charitable charitable foundation. Now, we give them all this because we want them to be fully independent while they're fulfilling their functions of governor general. But as I argue in the piece, this should come with a tacit bargain that, okay, we set you up for life to not to be completely impartial, to be non-controversial, to never have to, you know, sing for your supper. But after the part of that deal then should be, okay, once you've done that job, we shouldn't see you involved in controversial matters after. We shouldn't see you even holding other public offices because any other public office that you're going to hold after being governor general is going to be a notch down from having been governor general. Right. It's sort of the, the last big public public role then for these individuals. Well, it should be. It really should be the, the end of a long and remarkable career and a final act of public service so that everybody can rest assured that in that position, you're never going to be involved in anything controversial thereafter. You're never going to be aligned or accused to be aligned with another political party after. Uh, you're not going to be forced to defend yourself, as Mr. Johnson has to now, defending his honor and, and his independence uh, even from the media. It's, it's simply 
uh, a real shame to have somebody who was seen as such a good and model governor general now having to answer all these questions about his impartiality, about his independence, when really, you know, he would have been best remembered as our best governor general since mm-hmm. the uh, since the Second World War. Right. And I mean, David Johnston is David Johnston. This doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Mary Simon herself. But in terms of the position, and this is part of the concern that even though Mary Simon is separate from all of this going on, if we're damaging the prestige of the office as a result of maybe David Johnston seeming controversial in some capacity or some future former governor general, uh, you know, in the the same situation, it it can cast some doubt then maybe on the independence or the legitimacy of the current occupant or holder of that office. Right. I mean, if it becomes a pattern that governors general are taking on positions or asking governments, uh, prime ministers to find them other positions uh, because they they don't want to leave the, the office of governor general and have nothing to do with their time or whatever it is, uh, that has an impact on their independence. It has an impact on how they're perceived. And as you're saying, even the office itself should not be seen as uh, a temporary position that somebody then goes off and does other interesting jobs. Uh, it really diminishes it if it's simply seen as one other public position amongst any other that you would take on. Um, and f- particularly given the, the symbolism and the ceremony that goes along with this office, it should be associated with people who will not really be mired in any kind of controversy after because it, it diminishes the, the, the role that this office has as representing the nation to itself. And we really yeah. should want – yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, and I mean, further to that, I mean, yeah, I think you you speak to why this is important. I was going to make the point, and you draw the comparison in your piece to what you refer to as the judicial halo effect, where it's become quite common now to to rely upon former Supreme Court justices to take on roles and responsibilities or write reports or assess different questions. Uh, And I think some have raised concern about that. But is, is it still, you know, a level below the concern here around former governors general? How similar are these concerns or how how different are these situations? Uh, I think it's, in some case, a different category. So when it comes to retired Supreme Court justices, part of the real concern here is that you're taking somebody who's on um, uh, an institution that has nine voices, and they come to uh, a legal opinion, a judicial opinion, as part of nine people considering the issue. And now we're using them to make um, judicial and legal analyses in their own capacity alone. And so this raises questions of just how much are we supposed to be crediting this one person with having legal or judicial authority on questions that in the past they would have sat on a a court of nine justices and arriving at their conclusion. So, you know, it's being overused and it's uh, the treating the opinion of a retired Supreme Court justice as a final word on a legal issue is very fraught. Uh, it's not a good way to go. And by the same token now, we don't want to start doing this with other high offices that are effectively you know, borrowing the, the prestige of that office to give legitimacy to a controversial issue or to, to give legitimacy to the government's answer to a controversial issue. Uh, there are many other people who could, we could rely on who have more specialized expertise. Well, and, and going back then to when David Johnson was first appointed to the, this role, I mean, it didn't seem as though the government had any qualms uh, about that that issue. And I mean, maybe even David Johnson himself didn't either. I mean, was that concerning, disappointing to you? What, what did you make of the, the lack of concern around this at the time? Well, it is 
concerning and it is disappointing. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that um, uh, it reflects the fact that this government hasn't given much thought to the Office of Governor General. Uh, you'll recall this is the government that appointed Julie Payette without much vetting. Right. Um, and there are a number of provincial lieutenant governor's offices where the, the occupant has been in there far too long, is waiting to retire. But the government in Ottawa simply can't get around to appointing somebody else because they don't consider it a priority. And that tells us a lot, I think, about how these offices are being treated. And again, if if Canadians weren't giving so much financially to these offices and, and viewing them with as much importance, uh, maybe we could forgive that. But uh, there's some there's something off here about the importance in the Constitution and the amount that they're given in order to fulfill this role to be treated as just some other uh, position that somebody can take. Some very important points. As mentioned, uh, your piece, uh, it's up at The Line, theline.substack.com. Professor, like I say, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate your insight on this. Thanks very much. There you go. That's uh, Philippe, like I say, Associate Professor Barton Chair at Carleton University. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Well, some construction work is underway on 24 Sussex Drive, the official residence of Canada's prime minister. But Canada's prime minister, as in the current one, doesn't actually live at Sussex Drive, 24 Sussex Drive, and hasn't since taking office. Since 2015, Justin Trudeau has lived at Rideau College, a college cottage rather, in the grounds of the Governor General's residence. Because 24 Sussex Drive is in rough shape, is in sorry state, and is in uh, need, some dire need, of some major work. A report from a couple of years ago said it's in critical condition. But peg the cost uh, of doing all of that work at $36 million compared to a replacement value of $40 million. So those are big numbers, which has probably led to this inaction. But honestly, the, you know, regardless of who the prime minister is, like th- this is kind of an embarrassment, isn't it? We got, something's got to give here. Either we got to fix this or we got to knock it down and, and build something else. The, the status quo just can't persist. Yet it does. So why is that? And what, what needs to happen? Joining us for some thoughts on, on the state of 24 Sussex Drive and maybe some possible solutions. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. David Fleming was chair of Heritage Ottawa's Advocacy Committee and been following all of this very closely. David, appreciate you making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So this construction work that's being done on 24 Sussex Drive, this doesn't seem like it's any kind of real serious fix uh, on the residents. What's your understanding of what they're doing? No, I think at this point it's considered a safety issue. Okay. Um, you know, they've had problems with rodent infestations. They still have uh, knob and tube wiring, and uh, they need to really replace most of the mechanical and electrical systems for the building. So what this will do is I think the way they <clears throat> the public works uh, worded it was that it will bring it from a uh, – critical state to a good state (laughs) but it what it will do though is uh make it ready for uh, for any future use and 
just yesterday, the uh, federal government announced that the National Capital Commission will be making recommendations to cabinet by the end of this year. Well, that's encouraging. Um, you know, and, and look, you know, it's it's awkward for prime ministers to to have to make these kinds of decisions on the place that they live. And wh- why do you think that this has been overlooked, ignored for, for so long? Why have we seen so much inaction here? Well, I, th- I think, you know, you have to look at it from the point of view of the building itself and the property. The property is owned by the people of Canada. Property is not owned by the prime minister. The taxpayers of Canada provide the the prime minister with a place for he and his family to live. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a cost of doing business as a nation. All other countries in the world do this. It's not rocket science. It's not that we're unique. Uh, So I think what we've got to do is rise above that. It's really not up to... It's up to the prime minister to decide whether he or his family want to live there. If they don't want to live there, then that's fine. They can Mm -hmm. find somewhere else to live. Uh, But but I think, you know, we have to do it as a nation uh, to uh, to look after our heritage properties. We have a responsibility for doing that. And, um, you know, this building has been neglected for the past 40 years. Um, you know, I can remember a, a television spoof that Rick Mercer did with Paul Martin back in the early 2000s about, you know, putting uh, plastic sheets over the windows to keep the cold out. <laughs> uh-huh. So this is not something new. It's, a, it's, you know, typical of a lot of government buildings where they don't have enough money to, for, to look after the infrastructure and they deteriorate. Yeah. Well, there's the two options, right, of actually fixing it or tearing it down and building something new. I've heard the suggestion raised of something in between where maybe there is a different actual residence. Maybe we preserve 24 Sussex Drive, almost like some kind of a museum, like a historical site. I mean, what what do you want to see happen? Well, we want to see something happen. First of all, though, it's a prime minister's residence. And I think the first option should be to look at using it for that purpose. You know, whether uh, they add another wing to it to make a prime minister's office, uh, that's an option too. You know, you just have to look down the road on Sussex Drive and the British High Commission, who own Ernstcliffe, it's the home of the British High Commissioner, and it was the past home of uh, Sir John A. Macdonald. It's a National Historic Site. And what they've done on their property is they've built a, a small modern building, which now serves as the chancellery for the uh, High Commission. They used to have a large building uh, downtown, and they decided they didn't need all this space. And, you know, they've built this. They, they went through all of the heritage and planning applications of the city of Ottawa, and uh, they built a, a very tasteful modern building on uh, on the site which does not at all detract from uh, the heritage building so that's an option for uh for 24 sussex to do something similar but but they haven't really ever looked at it as, as an option um you know 
The government of Canada has uh, lots of people with skills as heritage restoration and conservation. We're doing a wonderful job of the Parliament buildings. We've done the former Union Station, which is now the Senate of Canada. And uh, so we've got the, the, the people and the, the, with the know-how to do this kind of work. What we need is a budget for it, and the budget, unfortunately, comes from the Prime Minister and Cabinet. And uh, you know, that seems to be the problem. It's, uh, it's become a political issue. Do we need if, like if a, an outside voice, an independent voice, or panels to, to maybe make these decisions? Well, we wrote to the Prime Minister twice, four years ago. And what we suggested at the time was that they set up a nonpartisan committee, uh, which could be made up of some politicians, you know, some uh, well-known Canadian architects or conservationists to look at what options were open for the building. What can you do for the building? You know, what's feasible? And uh, we suggested, ironically, at the time that uh, they be chaired by uh, some neutral person. And we suggested at the time it should be David Johnson, the former oh. <laughs> prime minister. But uh, he's uh, a bit too busy to do that yeah, i suppose now kidding. but 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 you know that was that was our our proposal we just want to see something happen yeah. if if it's decided that it doesn't uh it doesn't shouldn't function as the prime minister's residence then there's i think all sorts of other options i think it should be it should be kept in the public domain i don't think they should sell it off to the highest bidder um you know a few years ago there was talk about having a natural national portrait gallery and they had been eyeing the former American embassy on Wellington street for that. That didn't come to pass. Uh, national portrait gallery still needs some, uh, a home. So, you know, that, that's perhaps one thing. There's probably lots of other uses it could be f put to, but what we need is a, a group of nonpartisan people to look at it and to rise above politics and decide what we're going to do to keep this important historic site for the people of Canada. Indeed. Uh, more at heritageottawa.org. David, and we'll see where this all goes from here, but appreciate your perspective. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you. All the best. Uh, That's David Fleming uh, with Heritage Ottawa, uh, hoping for some kind of a decision on the future of 24 Sussex Drive. Look, it's it's part of Canada's history. I know there's a lot of concern right now that maybe we're losing some of our history or we don't care about our history. You know, this this fits in. It's it's a house that has been Canada's official prime minister's residence since 1951. The house itself goes back to the 1860s. Uh, so, yeah, there's historical value there. Whether the prime minister actually needs to live there moving forward, that's a separate conversation. But I think we got to figure something out. This, this status quo is pretty sad and honestly kind of embarrassing. Well, there's been a lot of debate about immigration policy, immigration targets in this country, especially in the province of Quebec, where, interestingly enough, the work being done by uh, our next guest and her organization have uh, become a major political controversy in uh, the Quebec National Assembly, a motion from the Parti Québécois calling on the government to say no to the Century Initiative was passed unanimously. Uh, Quebec's premier uh, made it clear that, yes, we agree with that motion. We are saying no to the Century Initiative. 
And, and this is part of a plan to increase Canada's population to 100 million by the year 2100. And what's interesting is, is based on the immigration targets we're now at, we're, we're certainly on that path. In the mid-60s, Canada's population was about half of what it is now. So we basically doubled our population over 60 years. It seems pretty reasonable that 60 years from now, our population might be double what it is now. And that would put us at about 80 million. So is 100 million by 2100 crazy? Is it desirable? Well, joining us to talk more about some of these uh, big ideas, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Lisa Lalan, uh, CEO of the Century Initiative, centuryinitiative.ca. Lisa, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, your thoughts on the, the debate in Quebec, this motion that, that passed in the, the uh, Quebec National Assembly condemning your organization and, and these ideas, what, what do you make of that? Well, I think there has been a lot of uh, misinformation about Centre Initiative uh, through this process. Mm -hmm. So I have the chance to correct the record here. And, and we recognize that Canada is a bilingual country. Um, it's, we recognize the Quebec nation, the rights of Quebecers, and their unique contributions to the country. We do believe in a bigger, bolder, bilingual Canada with 100 million Canadians. And we know that we believe that that will increase the prosperity for everyone, including the linguistic and cultural security of French speakers in Quebec and in the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we think it's possible to increase the number of newcomers across the country while also protecting the demographic weight of Francophones and Indigenous populations. Uh, but to do so, we believe that they have to be supported by policies that promote integration uh, and address some of the legitimate and biggest barriers that Canadians and I'm sure your, some of your listeners have today about affordability, inflation, jobs, climate action, and youth well-being. I think, you know, we have this big, bold uh, goal of 100 million people in Canada by 2100. But really, our purpose is to, uh, to, to talk about the demographic shifts that are underway in the country, why they actually matter, why we have to pay attention to them, and then what we need to do more broadly so that we can grow well as a nation and protect our country um, and our long-term, secure long-term economic and social prosperity. So from our perspective, whether we hit 90 million or 80 million by 2100, the idea is more about you know, inspiring big ideas, bold ideas, and really good evidence-formed debate around some of these issues. Yeah, and, and the numbers attention-grabbing and maybe deliberately slow. I realize most of us won't be around to 2100 to, to see this all through, but again, it's about the aspiration. I mean, the, the point here is right. that we should strive for this. So what's the argument for these kinds of targets? Why do we want to, to grow to this extent? Well, ultimately, we have a population that's aging. We're having fewer children and our workforce is shrinking. And with the pandemic, our birth rate was at the lowest uh, it's ever been in 100 years. Um, and ultimately, I, when I talk about this, I say we're a nation of old people. Um, we have a, a, a growing number of people retiring and a smaller number of working people to support them. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that this is happening, you know, as I mentioned, our fertility rate is dropping. So you put these statistics together, it points to a really bleak future for the country. If these trends continue, our economy is going to suffer. We're no longer to be able to afford a high-quality health care uh, and education, uh, income security, and the much-needed infrastructure investment. And without 
addressing these issues now and urgently, we're going to have to either have increased tax rates or we're going to see cuts to services. And, you know, I'm from a small town. Uh, we're already seeing and feeling the pressures of some of these demographic shifts with, you know, businesses closing, uh, healthcare emergency rooms closing. And so uh, there are options and solutions. Uh, with, um, from our perspective, given the reality of these demographic shifts, immigration is not the only way, but it's the most reliable mechanism that Canada has to grow its population. And then with that, its economic and social prosperity. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to see the economic deterioration that, that comes with a combination of higher taxes, shrinking GDP, shrinking productivity, but that's potentially the, the path we're on if we're not careful. That's right, and that's why, you know, often I have conversations with folks and they're saying, well, you know, we've got affordability issues, you know, I'm concerned about my kids and their ability to have a house of yeah, their housing, own someday. Yeah. Housing's huge, you know, we, we there's been an underinvestment in infrastructure for decades, and so it's easy to point the finger to, okay, immigration, that's the problem, let's just pull back, but, you know, if we do that, we do that to our peril. Uh, we just, we passed the point to be able to say, let's pull back until we fix these issues. We have to do both at the same time. And it requires all levels of government, business, and the nonprofit sector working together to tackle some of these issues. Um, and our position is, uh, is one where, you know, we've actually created a national scorecard on Canada's growth and prosperity to try to identify, like, what are those indicators of prosperity, how are we doing against those? And ideally, people will use that information to say, okay, you know, we need to move the needle in some of these areas in order for us to have a strong and prosperous future. I think Canada's largely had smart immigration policy. I know maybe other countries have criticized it, but I mean, you know, we've, we focused on skilled workers, we focused on young families. Uh, and I, I think that's been to, to our advantage. I, I think even arguably it's been a win-win, but you know, there are those who see that there can be cost to, to immigration, at least in, in the short term. But w- what's the right way to, to look at that, do you think? Well, I often get a question, and I think this is one where I always caution a discussion around this topic because the research doesn't actually support it. But the question I sometimes get is, you know, doesn't immigration take away jobs or drive down wages? Mm-hmm. And the answer is that it does not. While there are a mix of studies on this topic, by and large, the research shows that the impact of, it, of immigration on wages is insignificant. And in fact, uh, newcomers are you know, punching above their weight uh, in terms of their contribution to innovation and entrepreneurship in the country. Um, and if we make really good, smart policy choices, immigration can lead to wage growth and prosperity for everybody. So that means making sure that uh, newcomer skills complement the skills of Canadians and not, uh, so we're targeting jobs that we have uh, gaps where we are in need. Um, you know, we have construction, we have healthcare, we've got the green economy, tech, etc. Um, we need people to fill those jobs. At the same time, um, ensuring that immigrants are free to work for different employers, bidding up their wages, and, at the, and then also making sure that we're not leaving any other Canadians behind. So that means, you know, what, what the role that business and government can play in ongoing lifelong learning so that as tech changes, um, as, as la- the labour market changes, uh, Canadians can adapt with it. Now, we just had some record population growth, in fact, in, in Canada. We have more ambitious immigration targets in place. On, on this current path we're on... What does the the long-term forecast look like? Are are we already on the path maybe to 100 million by 2100? So this is where I say we were already on it. So even if we were to pull back on immigration targets to, say, uh, the Harper-level targets, we would already hit 100 million just a little bit later. Um, And so we're the... 
the first and only organization that's saying, let's aim for that, but let's at the same time be really smart about long-term thinking, planning, and investments so that we have the right infrastructure to accommodate growth, that we have the right housing solutions uh, to accommodate this growth, and that we're, um, we have a strong economy and also uh, a stronger nation that could uh, represent and advocate for itself on the global stage. So to also secure our, our own uh, space uh, in a potentially changing global uh, democratic environment. Very interesting. Much more is mentioned. Centuryinitiative.ca. Lisa Lalonde, thank you for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All the best. Lisa Lalonde is CEO of the Century Initiative, centuryinitiative.ca. I guess not popular amongst uh, Quebec's political elite these days, but uh, I think Quebec's being very short-sighted in its approach to immigration. Fine, so be it. If Quebec wants to see its population shrink, certainly relative to the rest of the country, or see its GDP shrink relative to the rest of the country, its productivity shrink, have fun with that. I mean, maybe that is a problem for the rest of us, but at the same time, if Alberta wants clout, Alberta wants to thrive, we need to grow. So, yeah, long term, that, that could work out well for Alberta, not so much for Quebec. But as a country, yes, if we want to grow our economy, grow our GDP, increase our prosperity, be able to afford even the, the kinds of programs we offer right now, we need to grow. The demographic, uh, you know, that th- those changes are coming. They're obvious. We're already into it. We have an aging population. And that's going to come at a significant cost. If you've got fewer taxpayers then uh, trying to support these costs, they're going to be expected to pay more. So that all adds up to shrinking GDP, lower productivity, higher taxes. It's a bad combination. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.